This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each other. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can learn together, that we can openly open up your word. This afternoon we pray, Father, as we study your word, we pray that your spirit will engage our minds and our hearts, that you strengthen our hands, that we may know you more and so we may love you more and that we may respond to you more. In his name and for Christ's glory. Amen. Now we all know this, that before a major mission is executed, we need to have clear briefings and be equipped. A soldier before going to the live range for the first time. A team preparing to meet a client and the competitors to make a bidding for a job. A doctor before entering the operating theater to open up somebody's body. Now imagine for a moment if a soldier is not briefed, after he shoots his live rounds, he runs straight in to take his empty cartridges and blanks, while everyone is still firing their, their ruffles, it, it wouldn't be a good scene. Or someone who is not prepared and they go to a business bidding, not knowing the competitors, not knowing what is the requirement. Or a doctor who comes in so confident he didn't check on the allergies, the prognosis of the um, patient, and he goes in the operating theater by his inspiration. I don't think anything very good will come out of it. For some, it will be a failure. For others, lives are at stake. And so it's the same for a disciple of Jesus before he sent out on a mission that he needs to be briefed. Now we have this back in, uh, if you have been with us in Matthew, back in chapter 5 to 7, we have Jesus speaking about the kingdom of heaven through a series of sermons on the mountain. We move on in chapter 8 and 9, where Jesus works out and reveals he is the king of the kingdom by authority and powers. And now as we move to chapter 10, Jesus is preparing to send out his representatives out on behalf of him and he is going to give them a briefing. And there are two layers in Matthew of sending out. The first layer will be sending out to the Jews and the second layer is to the rest of the world. We see both of these slowly being unpacked in the gospel according to Matthew. And today, Jesus has planned to give the briefing for the first mission trip ever. It is for the 12 apostles, but it is also very relevant to all who comes after to you and to me. So I hope you are ready for the briefing um, as Jesus gives it to us today. So if you are ready, keep your Bibles open and we'll look at Matthew 10, verse 1 and 2. Some passages will be up on the screen, others are not. So if you have your Bible, it's good to keep it open. Let me begin by reading verses 1 and 2 for us. Jesus called his 12 apostles to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles and the 12 are identified and named. Now, some Christians, when they read Matthew 10, verse 1, they get really excited. They feel that God has given them power to do miracles and uh, healing, and they should go out and do as much as possible. If you're one of those, or you've heard that, it will be sadly, or unfortunately, 
untrue if we do not look carefully at what the context is preparing and we will very quickly move out of the context of Matthew 10. Because this is what Matthew 10 begins with. Jesus is specifically calling 12 disciples by name and give them authority to be his representative. Because the time is near, Jesus the King has finally arrived on earth to fulfill what God has promised for millenniums. But his ministry is only two, three and a half years. Time is limited. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And he plans on sending 12 to be his representatives. And among all his disciples, he chose 12, calling them apostles, and to send them out. Now, the Jews were historically known as the 12 tribes of Israel after the 12 children or grandchildren of Israel. And so when Jesus sent out the 12, he meant to represent the God's messages out to the whole people of God. So as we look at verses 1 to 4 and even 5, we start to see that it states clearly that his authority is first given to the 12 apostles. They will proclaim the message of the king, and then they will validate it by doing what Jesus has been doing from verse chapter 9, chapter 8 and 9. And so we look at it. In fact, look at verse 5 to 8 as I read it to you and notice uh, what Jesus is giving. Verse 5, This 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Number 1, Do not go among Gentiles or enter any towns of Samaritans. Number 2, Go rather to the lost ship of Israel. And as you go, number 3, Proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And number four, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Well, in this first mission, Jesus has specifically told the twelve, do not go among the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Now, why does he say that? Well, Jesus, if we have been following, he's not someone that, um, just care for Jews and despise Gentiles and Samaritans because just before this, we have heard of Jesus healing the servant of a Gentile centurion. And a few chapters later, we see Jesus healing the daughter of a Canaanite woman. And in other places in the Gospel, we see Jesus entering a Samaritan town to heal the brokenness of a broken woman. And as we move on, by the time we reach the end of Matthew, Jesus says, you go out to the rest of the world to bring the good news to them. But now, why did Jesus start off in his first mission saying, don't go to them, just go to the Jews? Well, there are plenty of practical reasons, but there's one very crucial theological reason for it. Practically, the disciples are not ready to go out to the world. The fishermen, the tax collectors, they're not ready to head out to to, to the Romans, to the rest of the world proclaiming Jesus. Perhaps their hearts are not even ready or recognize the extent of the forgiveness of Jesus. On that occasion where Jesus went to the Samaritan village and they saw Jesus talking to the Samaritan, like, what is he doing? They are not yet ready to reconcile with their religious enemies to proclaim the gospel. So practically there are various reasons, but more importantly, there's a crucial theological reason why Jesus says this. Because for us to understand the mission of Jesus, how Jesus comes from heaven to earth to proclaim salvation and to gather a people for himself into the kingdom of heaven, 
we have to begin with the Jewish history. God has given his promise through the Jewish history that he will save his people through a Jewish king, the son of David. And through him, salvation is given to the rest of the world. And this is how it is. So, in fact, the Apostle Paul is right. Years later, as he wrote uh, his famous Romans in Romans chapter 116, he said this. I'll read to you. He says, the gospel, the gospel, which is the message of the king, has, is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Because in this pivotal point of history, it is rightly so that the the promised king of God, the son of David, he will first announce his arrival to the Jews. Because they are meant to be people who have been waiting their whole life for the arrival of the king. So the king makes a point that the, the Jews, the people of God, needs to first hear of his arrival, needs to know of the kingdom of heaven. And so they realize the faithfulness of God in fulfilling all that he has promised. We will sadly read as we move on that many will reject Jesus as the king. But nevertheless, Jesus made his point as the king. He has decided the people of God, the Jews, will need to first hear it. And because he's one man, it's two and three and a half years, he sends out his representatives to the towns and villages. And so they are to announce this, the twelve. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, the Jews, they will need some explanation. If you come in and see a Jew and say, King of Heaven has come near, it's like, what? But for the Jews, when they hear that, everything that goes right in the Old Testament rings on them. The salvation of God, the, 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 the peace of the, the dwelling with God, the rescue of God, the dining with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promises of God, they're all coming. They have the history and it will ring on them. And because the twelve, they are called to proclaim to the Jews that God's king has come, they are given the authority and the power to validate their words. They'll, do, they'll say what Jesus has proclaimed and they'll do what Jesus is able to do to validate that God's word is true, the king has come, and these are the validations. In fact, this is what he, they did. Look at verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who are Lepers drive out demons. And as they do that, they are briefed that they should reach out to the Jews freely just as they have received freely from the beginning. They are not to behave selfishly but to proclaim freely the way to the kingdom of heaven. And as they move on, they are, they are meant to provide glimpses of how heaven looks like. And that's what they are meant to do. So now this is a mission that requires the twelve to obey the king's commission, and to trust in the king's provision. Because Jesus goes on to say, you are not to bring or even receive gold, silver, or copper. You are not to seek out personal gains from those you have healed, from those you have preached the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Now this is really different from the ancient as well as our modern world. Because you and I, we, we know, it, the, the more charismatic a speaker is, the more proficient and skilled a doctor is, the more secrets a personal development guru has, the higher their remuneration, the more they charge. But not so for the twelve. They are meant to do it freely and to trust God's way of provision. 
And while the king's authority is given to the twelve, there are, in this, two specific principles that continues to play out in the rest of the missions that they have and the rest of the missions that we have. And the two that you see as Jesus says this are two. One is to obey his command to go out. And second is to trust his way of provision. Now, the question will come is, okay, if we don't behave the rest like the rest of the world, how will God provide? And this is the answer that Jesus will give as he moves on. He says, he will provide through worthy people. So who are the worthy people? They are those who receive the king's messenger and message. They receive the message and in turn they partner with the messengers for the king's sake. They will provide for the messengers for the king's sake so that the message will carry on. This is the king's way to proclaim and this is the king's way to provide. The message of the kingdom is proclaimed, received and the hearers become partners with the kingdom messengers. That is true for the first mission and that will be true for the rest of missions even today because isn't this true in our times today? That you and I, when we go to places, we depend on kings, worthy people to receive us. When we go to somewhere that is foreign to us, we depend on people who are there, who are God's people to receive us, to provide shelter for us, perhaps even provide coverage when it comes to the law and the governments. In fact, many of our church mission trips would not have happened if God didn't have worthy people there to receive us, to even cover for us at their own expense and risk, especially in places that it's not easy to get in. And it's the same when we come to Singapore, that someone here must be willing to take the responsibility, even the risk, to apply for foreigners to come in to speak the gospel. It comes at your expense when you do that. And it goes on their expense for them to do that. And this is the Lord's way as He says that as you go forth, that the worthy people, if they are there, they will provide for you to do your work. So now Jesus' briefing as He goes is far from over because He also wants to give a warning. As they go out, the reality is that not everyone will accept their message or the king that they present. They would reject the king. And Jesus says, when they do that, they'll be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. Now imagine the first mission is to the Jews. They're familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's in Genesis where God sent out you know, sulfurs and destroyed the whole town because of their sin against man and against God. And Jesus says, when they reject you, They'll be worse off. The reason is this, because they are men, the Jews, they are meant to be waiting for the king. And when you come and present the, the great message and you validate it, and they still re, re, reject your message, they are not doing it out of ignorance. They are doing it out of rebellion. That's why they are given such power and such horror as well if they were to reject the messengers. Now, in this briefing, Jesus also makes sure his missionaries are well aware that persecution awaits them. If we were to obey the king's mission, as we read on, Jesus says this in verse 16 to 23, there will be warnings of persecution that will go beyond even their first tour of duty for this 12. This briefing is about the way the world will actually respond whenever message goes off 
response comes in, then the response will include persecution. The, the disciples, they were familiar with this because just one chapter before, in chapter 9, where Jesus preached the message and proclaimed the message, he authenticated it with his life, the opposition didn't say, ah, oh, that's great. They say, he's the demon. They would rather say that he's a demon than to acknowledge he comes from God. And Jesus says, and that will happen as the message goes forth. In fact, let me read verse 17 to 18. Jesus' warning. They will be handed over to the local councils and be flocked in the synagogue. And on Jesus' account, verse 18, be brought before governors and kings and witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Though when we read 18, they probably would not have experienced that extent in their first mission trip but they will have experienced it enough because it's all recorded in Acts as they continue. So in time to come, Jesus' missionaries will reach governors and kings and look at it in verse 18, to Gentiles as well. And in the process, they will be persecuted. So this briefing is not just a once-off for the first mission, but it also alludes to what will come in the future as well. Because as long as message goes out, the persecution will be there well and alive. But now we may ask, so Jesus has this mission, what is his strategy? If you're going to be a missionary, you want to know what's the mindset you are going out with, isn't it? You want to know, okay, how should I think about myself? How should I go out? And here Jesus will bring out his point in verse 16. Look at verse 16. What is the mindset he wants the missionaries to have? I'm sending out like warriors among the weak that you will be able to eliminate. That's that's surely not the case if you are looking whatever version you have. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Oh, wait a minute, if you want to be a missionary, you want to be gung-ho, sheep among wolves doesn't sound very safe. Is that the best that Jesus can do? And it seems like it that it is. That is his grand plan. Because the missionaries, they will not be going out with weapons to force people to become Christians or you die. That's not the way Christianity works. You go out with the good news of God's King, that He has come, repent, come to Him, and you will have life. They'll go out to the harvest field to do good, to love, to be compassionate, but most importantly, to present the way to life. And the ships are to go out, we're told, with great wisdom, single-mindedness, they are to be committed they are the spirit of God, their Father, as the proclaim. And Jesus says, and that is enough for you. And this is a crucial briefing for the twelve before they go out, and it's a crucial briefing for us if we go out. The message of the King it is powerful. It has the power to pierce the hearts of kingdom to be people and bring them to their knees to acknowledge Jesus is King. The, web, the, the message of the king is powerful enough to draw all kinds of people from all walks of life into the kingdom of heaven. The message itself is powerful as a weapon for those who are to be kingdom people. But the message itself becomes a threat for those who are not kingdom people. And when they hear, they will respond with persecution, with imprisonment, even death. So the messengers will be persecuted and so were those who opened up their homes to receive them. In our recent years, we have seen this happening. In our church is not unfamiliar because we pray often for persecuted churches. We read it often, 
how Christians are persecuted even though they have no arms except for the message. In fact, if you look on to verse 21, 22, it, it happens even in our time. Let me read this to us. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child, a child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So persecution will come from outside, from governors, from kings. Persecution will come from inside, from the ones that you call your family. They will come in various ways. Could be death, could be prison, could be hatred, or perhaps it could be isolation, it could be withdrawal of love, it could be that look of disappointment that comes on you. I'm not sure about you, but some of us would have known of friends who become Christian and they dread telling their family that they become Christians or they want to be baptized. They take years, they take weeks, months. Some of them have taken much longer than that to prepare to tell their parents that they've become Christians because they dread the look of disappointment. They dread the look of betrayal. They dread the look that you are an outcast now and not my son or daughter. I was reading um, biographies to my children at night and often we end up reading um, Christians who moved from a different religion and they became a Christian and, and the parents reject them and the village killed them and my kids normally don't enjoy that part very much and say, Dad, that's terrible. I said, but that's true. That's always true. It happens. Some will accept and they'll face persecution but there'll be others who almost, you find that they're almost at the edge of the kingdom of heaven but at the last minute they pull back because they realize it's costly and they do not want to take it up. I remember a few years ago, I was reading the Bible, the, the Gospel of Mark with an Iranian guy. A few years ago, we have been reading it uh, regularly. And one day he came uh, into church and we were reading and he said, Andrew, I can't meet you anymore because I've got a friend from home who's coming in. And he asked me, where do I go every Sunday? And because he's do- not doing anything, he asked, who are my friends? And he, he knows, everyone at home knows. That was the last time I met him. That was the last time I, I tried to message him and say, hey, is your friend still around? Do you want to stick? Nothing. Nothing. Now, we may not face the same threat as Christians do in East Asia and Asia and Middle East around us who face death, who face imprisonment, but we have our own struggles and persecutions. Are there some of us perhaps who have experienced the pain of division that Jesus and his message does. Perhaps some of us have lost relationships, some even potential marriage partners because of the gospel message. Perhaps we have to count the cause when we want to share a gospel, the gospel with a colleague who we know if he or she becomes a Christian, they get into big trouble, I get into big trouble. Or perhaps some of us have endured before angry or unhappy responses after you shared the king's message perhaps to a family, to a cab driver, to in a dialogue session, or even a talk as you are talking, that people give you that death-looking look uh, as if you are a criminal. Perhaps we have experienced this. Perhaps we have not because we have not gone out and tried. But when we do bring the message out, Jesus says persecution is part of it. Now we may ask this question then, Andrew, wait a minute. Does, how does Jesus' briefing for the twelve in Matthew 10 relate straight to us because you say some are not and some are well 
obviously some things have changed since the first mission because we are not called to be the 12 pillars to the, to the Jews. We are not what verse 23 tells us to go to many Jewish towns and perform miracles before Jesus' accomplished his mission because Jesus in a very big way has accomplished his mission. He has died, he has risen, he has been to the side of the Father declared to be the Son of Man, the victorious one that Daniel 7 proclaimed. All this have happened. But in another sense, because the whole thing has not accomplished, the kingdom of heaven has not fully come, Jesus has not fully judged, and he has not fully brought his people into the kingdom of heaven, there is a continuation on what we need to do. We still need to obey and bring about his message, which he will repeat in Matthew 28. We are called to trust in his way and his provision. The Christians, we are called to be both messengers and partners of the gospel, and we are called to expect persecution. It's part of the package of being a Christian. Suffering and cause are part of what we become when we obey and trust in Jesus. But now Jesus didn't say, okay, that's the end of the briefing. Go well, I hope you the best. Love you, see ya. No, he didn't. Because he continued to make sure that none are stranded who goes out. He wants us to be clear that we do not need to fear when persecution comes here. And so from verses 26 to 33, Jesus wants to help his missionaries face three internal fears that will creep in if we try to obey and we try to trust. Three times Jesus says, do not fear or do not be afraid from verse 26 to 33. And so we look at this comfort and encouragement from Jesus. Now the first one it seems to be is, the, the first fear is that they fear to be slandered or maligned. So the oppositions, they may slander Christians, but Jesus says, do not be afraid because they are using the same tricks that they use on me to shut me up. In fact, they have been calling me Beelzebub, prince of demons. But then Jesus assures his missionaries, truth will always emerge. So declare boldly. In Jesus' time, it wasn't clear that the Pharisees were against Jesus or plotting against him, but in history, we all know that it is, and the truth prevailed. And so Jesus said in verse 26, look at it, do not be afraid of them. And verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, speak in daylight, what is whispered in your ears, proclaim from the roof. So he's saying, do not fear the schemes of man, truth will prevail. And so what Jesus had taught his disciples privately in their private classes, now they have to proclaim publicly that the rest of the world will also receive the same. So the first one, do not fear slander because truth prevails and they are called to proclaim the truth boldly. Now the second fear, it moves on, is death. And this time around, Jesus matches fear with a greater fear. Do we fear man? Do we fear evil and what he can do to us? Jesus says, you haven't seen what God can do. And so he says, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So in the grand scheme of eternity, for Christians, it means that when we face trouble, when we face persecution and difficulties, when we face even life threat, we can in some way say that, you can't really kill a Christian. You can change his address or her address. But while you're doing that, you should fear the one who can destroy you. 
In fact, Proverbs has it in the other way. In Proverbs 29, 25, uh, the wise teacher says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And so the second fear is this, but Jesus says, Do not fear death. Fear the one we will meet after that. Do not fear death. Fear the one that we will meet after that. And lastly, the last fear perhaps is the fear of being abandoned. Because being abandoned is one of the most devastating emotion or a situation that a person can experience. And I pray, I hope no one here actually experienced that kind of oh, situation to be abandoned. But the devil, the world, and those who oppose the cross will always try to find ways and means for us to feel abandoned by God. Missionaries who have given their lives to the gospel and the message and they come back with a broken body and penniless and they can't deal with it. Or Christians who just become Christian and thrown in prison with no light forever and then in comes a plate of tray and the message that if you renounce Jesus and you bow to the dictator, well, in fact, I'll give you something good. Your God is not good to you. Or Christians who who become Christian and try to share the gospel and everything just go down south, like nothing goes well and you feel that God has abandoned you. It, it could be a real thing for Christians to feel abandoned. But Jesus says, do not be afraid. And verse 29, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet no, not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care because you are worth more than many sparrows. You know, the, the reason why Jesus says do not fear because you are worth much more and you are not abandoned is because he bears the greatest abandonment that he should never have but we should experience. Because right at the end of Matthew, on the day on that fateful Friday at 3pm where Jesus hung there on the cross, for our sins and bleeding for our sake, he, he cried out these words that should never have been his, but he took it on so that we can have his. And he said that, this is in Matthew 27, 46. Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had said that, he absorbed that abandonment of sin. He tells us, you do not have to be afraid because you are worth much more than that. Now, the question for us now is this, that as we face perhaps difficult situation or even hopeless situation, what worth do we have before God? What, what is your answer? What worth do you have before God on a time where you feel abandoned by everyone else in this um, loveless world or whatever situation? What worth do you have before God? The answer Jesus will have given by the time Matthew ends is, you are worth the king's death. You are worth the king's death. And God knows the worth that he has placed on you and me. And it's not small. If you are kept for the sparrows, you will never abandon those who are his. And so Jesus brings this out. The third fear of abandonment must remember that we are priceless in the Father's sight. So for Christians, as we obey the King's mission to go out, share the gospel, as we trust in His provision, even as we are sheep among wolves, even as we fear our face, suffering and persecution, Jesus wants to give in His briefing 
that we need not fear. Need not fear slander, need not fear death, need not fear that you'll be abandoned or worthless because you are in good hands. Now that is a really important part of the briefing for anyone who go out for the king. And with that we come to the last part of Jesus' briefing because all missions must have an outcome. A well-trained soldier who didn't die from life firing as he goes out of war, there is a great hope that there is an, a good outcome. People have prepared all their life or all their time for this bidding of business. They are hoping they will get a good outcome. The doctor who has studied carefully and humbly and carefully the patient's prognosis, allergies, and everything hopes to have a good outcome. And so, when Jesus has given his briefing, he also says that there will be outcome. But unlike the rest of us humans, he knew exactly how the outcome is and he wants to bring it out right at the forefront, even before to go out. And this is the outcome. Now, the reason why he has said this is because it is really not what the world assumes of a religious leader. A religious leader should be someone who brings good things. But this is what Jesus says. Look at verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Now, wait a minute. Is politically incorrect? He shouldn't be saying this. Well, a leader like that should say something good. We should get all get something good out of him. But Jesus says no, and we need to understand why Jesus says that. The reason Jesus says is not bringing peace, but rather sword, is because in the king's mission. It's going to divide the world into two groups. And there were outcomes for both. Jesus is not here to give an emotional feeling of world peace among nations and everybody. He's not here to be that best personal development guru to teach you peace in time of stress at work. You know how to close your eyes and think about Jesus and he can feel, feel you peace. And he's not here to do that. Jesus comes, his mission here is to divide the world. People will be divided whenever the mission goes out, whenever the message goes out. The king's message and his mission is to bring sword into this world. In fact, look at verse 32 to the 3. If you look at it, it speaks of this division among people because of the king. Those who acknowledge Jesus before others and those who deny Jesus before the others. And Jesus says, and when I come, I'll respond likewise. And again, if you move on to verse 37 to 39, it speaks of this division among people because of the king. Those who love Jesus more than all the others and those who love all the others more than Jesus. The former, those who love Jesus, they love him as the creator king who has given them gifts of everything, even family. Now, if you look at the passage, take note that Jesus is not saying that you don't love because these are God's gift to them. They can love all that God has given, but Jesus demands you love me more than all this. But for the second group who will love what is given more than the giver, Jesus says they will not have life at the end. So those who grab Jesus above everything will get life. Those who grab other things before Jesus will see death. And to drive the point, that his mission really divides like a sword. Jesus then quotes Micah 7, which we read in our responsive reading. And this is how it is. In the days of Micah, the Israelites were under King Ahaz. He's a bad king. 
And so there were plenty of sins and the people of Israel uh, were sinning and they couldn't trust anyone. They couldn't even trust their own family. Father couldn't trust the son. Daughter couldn't trust the mother or the mother-in-law for their enemies could well be in the members of their own household. And Jesus, when he quotes Micah, he's declaring that the same will happen under the good king, Jesus, because there will be a great divide. Sons will be against fathers. Loyalty will spread between daughters and mothers or mother-in-law. A person's enemies will come from within their household. The mission will cause division because some, even in the household, will love him. Some in the household will hate him. But as Jesus finished up his mission briefing, he was to give that one last passage, but it is one of the greatest assurance to his missionaries and to all who will receive him. Because the king will reward those who faithfully obey and proclaim him and those who willingly receive his message. So let me read to you what Jesus has. And it's a very precious uh, encouragement and hope for all who needs to go out and who will go out. 40 to 42 ends this way. Anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet, a righteous person, well, they will receive the same reward as them. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, now cold water is really just a basic hospitality in a Jewish town. If you give a cup of cold water to a little one for, that is my disciple, I will not forget it. And so those who welcomes the messenger because of the message welcomes Jesus and welcomes God. And those who receive and welcomes God's people, the kingdom people, be it a prophet, be it a righteous man, be it a, a little one, the king will not forget. And he has rewards for them because the king, this one thing about the king, he never forgets those who obeys. He never forgets those who trust. So dear friends, as we come to a close to Matthew 10, we need to ask this question, how will we respond to the king's briefing? If you're not a Christian yet, you're someone who is hearing this for the first time, you haven't heard the, the, the king's message, which is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, turn to him and be part of it. Then the time for us now is to think, have we been king of our own lives for too long, way too long? Have we been ignoring the king that is coming to judge way too long? Because the time will come where the one who can forgive, who can restore, and who will judge is coming. And I pray that if you are someone who has not received him, to think carefully. And if you want to receive him, then this briefing becomes the message to you. But for the rest of us, if we are already a Christian, we have already believed in Jesus, we already accept his word, then we must listen carefully and apply what the mission briefing is applicable to us. Just like the first missionaries, because we too must proclaim in obedience the king's message. We too must trust that the king who sends us, uh, sends us out like sheep among the wolves will provide for us to do what we need to do. We must take heed of his warning that we should expect persecution is part of the package when we speak to our family, colleagues, friends, strangers, we, we should not be surprised. But at the same time, we can find assurance that Jesus has already given us the reasons not to fear and that he'll never abandon us. So that after we've done all of that, as we've go forth consistently uh, living out as a Christian, we know one thing, 
and is the thing that will bring us smile because the king is coming back. The day will come when he comes back with his reward to call upon the names of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven and he never forgets those who have believed in him. He never forgets those who have preached and proclaimed the message at a costly price. He never forgets and he's coming for his people. Let's pray as we consider his briefing in our own lives. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ that if we come to him, he is so willing to forget, forgive our sins, but he's so willing to remember even the smallest thing that we do because we have loved Jesus. Oh, Father, we do not deserve what he's giving us, but he has given it to us when we proclaim him as our King and Savior. So, Father, we pray you teach us that we may obey our King, that we may trust our King, that we may persevere this life for our King, that we may be strengthened by the words of our King as we await longingly for our King's return. For He has come and He will return with the rewards He promised. In His glory we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.